0: Good evening, my name is Benny. The second Bible reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 2 verse 5, so it should be on the page 1193. For the message of the cross is fullnessless to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is a scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than men's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or spiritual wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on man's wisdom but on God's power. This word of God. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Penny. Uh, Now, friends, let me encourage you to grab an outline. Uh, Take a moment to turn around welcome each other and I'll call you back in a moment. Okay, friends, uh, let's come back. We'll pray once more and we'll have a look at this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to set our eyes and hearts on what is important, on the things above. And so we pray that as we consider this passage, you will help us see the glory of the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the Christian faith, there is nothing that is more offensive than the cross of Christ. There's nothing more scandalous Nothing more foolish, nothing that seems more weak, nothing more shocking. I mean, a story of a man walking to to the cross, as we've just sung, a frail, lonely man walking to the cross to be killed. Many people see it that way. But yet, at the very same time, there's nothing more central to the Christian faith. Isn't that interesting? How ironic. People look at the cross and they say, this is foolishness. But yet Christians, we hold it dear. It is the centre of what we believe. Now, why is that? How is it that we would believe in something that would cause so much offence in this world? People look at it and say, this is nonsensical, but we believe it. We keep it at our centre. Now, just listen to what some people say about the cross of Christ. Richard Dawkins, an atheist, he says, he considers the cross as a vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent. He continues to say, we should also dismiss it as barking mad. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment? Another atheist, Christopher Hitchens, what did he say? He said, Christians, for example, declare me a redeemed by a human sacrifice that occurred thousands of years before I was born. I didn't ask for it and would willingly have forgone it. But there it is, I'm claimed and saved whether I wish it or not and if I refuse the unsolicited gift where there are still some vague mutterings about an eternity of torment for my ingratitude. That is somewhat worse than a big brother state. That's what the atheists claim. They look at it and say, this is foolish. You are ridiculous for believing in this message. But you see, it's not just the atheists who say such things. It's not just the atheists who find the message of the cross foolishness and obscene and absurd. So-called Christian leaders, Christian teachers today also prefer to proclaim a Christianity without the cross, a bloodless Christianity. There's a a, a Christian leader, Rob Bell, he says this, the blood was never for God. And so what he meant by that was the, the sacrifice wasn't really necessary. It wasn't even a sacrifice that was just to help humans live with, absorb and trust the love of a God who keeps on insisting, trust me. That's what Christian, uh, so-called Christian teacher is teaching. Or another guy, Steve Chalk, he said, The fact is that the cross is a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he had not even committed understandably, he goes on to say, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. You have atheists claiming the cross of Christ, the message you believe as Christians. It's foolish. And you have so-called Christian leaders claiming the same thing. This is ridiculous that you would believe a man carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem to be killed will be the centre of what you believe. And so why is it that the cross of Christ would attract and draw such vehement responses? I mean, you, you don't really hear people get fired up against many of the other world religions, do you? So what is it about the cross that causes people to despise it, to look down on it? Well, this is what we'll see today in our passage. Paul makes it so clear to us. You see, Paul shows us today that the very design and purpose of the cross is that it's meant to create this division. The cross divides the world into two groups. And so let's open up your Bibles and we'll work through these passages. So let's think about this. Paul says in this passage that the very design and purpose of the cross is to divide humanity into two distinct groups. There's in fact nothing in the world that divides the world in such a way. No greater distinction, no greater divide. Because you see, on one side, how you see this cross, how you understand this cross, determines whether you'll be one who will perish, who will be destroyed. And on another side, the way you see it will determine whether you'll be saved. There's nothing more contrasting than the cross of Christ. This one message would divide the world into two groups. And so Paul begins this section in this way. He's sort of like does a little smackdown with the Corinthian church. He's, in a sense, claiming, saying to them, you foolish Corinthians, you you don't move on from the cross to anything else. There's nothing more impressive than the cross. There's nothing more uh, more powerful than the cross. And so don't go looking anywhere else. And so verse 18, he sums it up. Have a look, verse 18. For the message of the cross on one side is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, we must ask why. Why is it that the one and same message, just one same message, can at the same time appear foolish to one group, to one group that they see and they say it's nonsensical, but yet to another group it is the power of God to save. Well, the reason lies in God himself and what God has done in this design. You see, humanity, in our arrogance, in our pride, we think that the human mind is capable of anything. We're capable of doing anything. We're unstoppable. The human mind is that brilliant. And and on one level, it is. The human mind has been capable of many, many brilliant things throughout human history. The greatest human minds have been able to split the atom, land a man on the moon, make planes that fly faster than the speed of sound. But yet, you see, the greatest human minds, the greatest physicists, the greatest doctors, the greatest lawyers, the greatest leaders, the greatest philosophers of history, the greatest wise men of all times, they can't even come to know who God is through their own brain power. They can't even make sense of God and his plans and his purposes. They can't even understand the way of God as brilliant as they are and that's because we're told here God has in fact frustrated the intelligence of human intelligence. God has prevented human wisdom from discovering who he is and so God has established the utter folly of human wisdom and God has done so to relegate human arrogance and pride. So, in a sense, you think your human brain power can, can discover who I am, my plans, my glory. Well, you know nothing. In fact, your mind is given by me. And so, God has done this supremely in the simple, nonsensical message of the foolish cross. And so, this is what we see, verse 19 onwards. Have a look. Paul quotes here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. see, that was God's purpose in the cross of Christ. That was God's design in the cross of Christ, that it would divide the world in such a way that when one looks at it and sees this cross as a foolish idea, they are perishing. And when another looks at it and sees it as the power and wisdom of God, well, they are saved. Now, sometimes it's actually quite hard for us to grasp the irony of the cross, to grasp even the offence of the cross. And that's simply because we live in an age where we we don't crucify anyone anymore. See, many today see the cross as a nice piece of jewelry, you know, things we wear around our necks or from our ears or signs, symbols on crosses. But you see, to those in the first century who 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 lived during that time, they actually got to witness the brutality of the cross. They got to see the shame of the cross, and so it will be as shocking. And as grotesque as today, wearing a golden electric chair around your necks as jewellery. it'll be as grotesque and shocking as wearing a platinum noose on your ears. Would that go well as a look? Or an atomic bomb as the logo of a church? Or big gallows on the roof of a church? Gallows that work, that would just chop things flying glass. Imagine what that would do for our community. You see, it will be that shocking, it will be that grotesque. You see, the crucifixion was associated during that time with nothing less than the brutal torture of a criminal. It was associated with evil and corruption and rejection and shame. It was the place where the most vile of criminals were killed. And so the world looks at it, you you believe that? Why will you hold that central to your faith? In fact, in many polite company, you would not even mention the word cross. It was that bad. The association was that bad. And a a philosopher of the first century, Cicero, he said this, let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes and his ears. You see, the the cross actually didn't actually uh, become a Christian symbol until later into the second century and even to the third century. People wanted to stay away from the cross. It was that bad. And that's why, here in this passage, the Jews could not understand it. The Greeks could not understand it. You see, the Jews were looking for great displays of power. They wanted to see miracles. Remember, during the life of Jesus, they they wanted, they demanded, show us a miracle. They wanted a powerful Messiah. But what did the Jews get? They got the cross of Christ, they got a crucified Messiah. And that to them was offensive. How can our Messiah be killed in such a way? That was weakness. The one who is crucified, if anything, that is being cursed by God. And so the Jews look at the cross and say, this is foolishness. This is weakness. And the Greeks, well, they looked for wisdom. In the ancient world, the Greeks were the great thinkers. You've got Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. But here... The claim is that this crucified man is the Lord of the universe, the one who made the stars, the heavens, the moon, the one who made everything. And that man who died on the Roman cross is king. Well, to the Greeks, they look at that and they think this is offensive. This is just foolishness. This is nothing less than weak failure. And so the cross of Christ, it goes against the wisdom of the world. It goes against what the world finds powerful. No one could have ever devised what God devised. No one could have ever thought up of or ever imagined that God would save the world this way in sending his son to die this brutal death. But yet in this simple message, it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. It is the supreme display of God's power and wisdom. And this is what we see. Look at verse 22 to 25. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has caught, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You see, in the cross of Christ, this one event, this message... God undermines and he opposes all human wisdom and power. It is there by God's design and purpose. The cross divides the world like nothing else. Only two sides. You're either in one or the other. You look at the cross you see as foolishness. Well you are amongst those who are perishing. You look at the cross and you see that this is the power of God. Well you are amongst those who are being saved. Two camps. The world is divided. And so That brings us to the next question and that is, who are the ones who can understand the cross then? Who are the ones who get to see it, who get the cross? Well, it's not the great philosophers, the great thinkers, not those who trust in their own minds, their own brain power, their own wisdom. Do you notice what Paul says here? He was speaking to the Corinthian church. Now, if you remember from last week, this was a church that was messed up in every way. A church rife with all problems and issues. There was division and rivalry and factions and politics in this church. It was not a church going well. But yet Paul here reminds them that they are people who actually got the cross because they've been called. They've been summoned by God. And so God not only provides Jesus, the crucified saviour, God also summons them to understand that Jesus is the crucified saviour. You see, even that understanding and knowledge, that wisdom comes from God. And so if this is the case, the cross not only divides, it also humbles those who believe. It also humbles those who accept it and understand it. See, none of us can claim to God, God, I deserve this. I deserve to know you. I deserve a relationship with you. I deserve eternal life. I deserve heaven. I deserve all that you have to offer. I deserve it all, God. It's all me. Or or we might even go on to say, in fact, God, you owe me. Look at my life. I've been a decent man. I've helped, always helping old people across the road or letting old people sit on on my seat on the train. I'm doing decent things, God. You owe me, in fact. And I've also applied my mind to knowing who you are. Surely, God, I deserve this and you owe me. And Paul says no. No and no. See, Paul, he wants the church to remember what they were when they were called, when they were first called. God did not save you because you were smart. God did not save you because you were intelligent. God did not save you because you were decent. God did not save you because you are of royal property. You see, God did not save you because he needed you. Rather, when you were called, Paul says to them, when you were called, what were you like? Well, you were normal. You were ordinary, wretched sinners, dead in sin, awaiting judgment and condemnation. That's who you were. But now God has called you. He has summoned you. And so you can now be saved. And so there's no boasting at all among you. God has provided Jesus the Saviour. God has provided us with the wisdom and the mind to understand and accept that. And so there is no boasting at all. So have a look, verse 26 onwards. Brothers, think of what you were when you were caught. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But what was God's strategy? Well, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, that's a wonderful picture of heaven. In heaven you don't have the elite of society, you don't have the greatest and smartest, you have normal, wretched sinners who were caught and summoned by God, grasped by him and saved by him. You see, there's no such thing as a proud Christian. Christian, by the very nature of how they've been saved, must be humble. There can be no boasting among Christians because Christians are those who recognise that I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I'm a wretched sinner and even if I had all the wisdom of the world, Even if I have all the power of the world, I can't save myself. And that's why the cross is offensive. To accept the cross, you must be humble. To accept the cross, you must recognise that you are nothing. To accept the cross, you must see that you can't and Jesus can. And that's why it's offensive. And so Christians, what are we to be like? Well, we can't boast, we can't be proud. Rather, Christians are um, like that old saying, beggars telling other beggars where to find food. Christians know of Jesus Christ. We look to him and we tell everyone, look to him, go to him. He's the display of God's wisdom and power. He's where you go to be righteous, to be right with God, to be holy, to be set apart by God, to be redeemed, to be purchased back by God. Look to Jesus, look to him, not at me. And so we see this in verses 30 and 31. Have a look. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so there is to be no boasting at all. Amongst the Corinthians, it is all excluded. God has not only provided the Saviour, God has provided the means, the wisdom, the understanding to trust in this saviour. It is all God's work, God's calling, God's summons. And so what have we seen? Well the cross divides the world, divides the world into two camps and to get into the camp that is being saved, well amongst those there must be no boasting. The cross divides and the cross humbles. And so what then does this mean for us today? What does it mean for us if we claim to be Christians? What does it mean for our life, for our church, for the way we conduct our ministry? Well, here from this passage we have much to learn from Paul. Now, it's quite hard to imagine Paul not being eloquent or engaging and it's hard to imagine Paul being afraid and trembling at his knees when he proclaimed the gospel of Christ to the Corinthians. But he tells us this. Look at verse 1 and 3. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. And verse 3 I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. But you see, Paul was focused on the content. He wanted people to focus on the message, not on him. He wanted to draw attention away from him. He didn't want people to look at how great of an apostle I am, better than all the others. Look at how many churches I've planted. Rather, Paul wanted to draw attention to Christ alone. Look at him. Listen to the message. He wanted people to be won over, not by his amazing capabilities, but by the power of God in the gospel. And we see this, verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. And so how should knowing that, how should knowing how Paul conducted his ministry affect our lives, affect our church, affect the way we conduct our ministry? Well, what this should make crystal clear to us is that each one of us, what this church is about, that should be made clear. Our church does not exist to impress the world, to show the world that we are so good, to show the world how organised we are, to show the world how impressive we are, how politically correct we are. I mean, if we want to impress the world, we can water down the gospel, can't we? We can water it down so that we preach a bloodless gospel, a crossless Christianity. We can preach a gospel where we don't point out the sin of people, that this is what is expecting, uh, what we, what is awaiting of all those who sin. There is judgment, there is condemnation. We can preach a gospel without any of that, and so when you preach a gospel without any of that, there's no need for the cross. We can do away with the cross. We can do that. And that will perhaps have large appeal. But you see, we must not. We follow the example of Paul. We must not, and this cannot be us. All the ministries in our church, our kids' church teachers, don't exist to be there as babysitters. Our youth group leaders don't exist to be entertainers. Our growth groups don't exist to be social clubs. We proclaim Christ, we exist for Him. We proclaim Christ because it is this message alone that divides the world but it's this message alone that saves. And also we must also boast, if we are to boast at all, boast in Christ alone. Our salvation is not, is not ours because we've been so good, because of our efforts, because of our wisdom, because of our intelligence. It is all Christ. It is all Christ. And so as I walk through life as a Christian, my only boasting is in Christ. Look at him. He's my saviour. He died for me. Look at him. And so when I proclaim Christ alone and when I boast in Christ alone, then we must also expect to be derided, to be scoffed at, to be ridiculed to be made to feel small and even foolish. How can you believe in such nonsense? Well, the Apostle Paul, he did that and he was hated. He was beaten, he was even jailed for proclaiming the foolish message of the cross. You see, but we must remember, people will respond that way. The cross divides the world. People will respond that way because it's that way by God's design. But we must also remember that when we proclaim him, when we boast in him, because that is the only message that will save, and so we do it. As feeble and as weak our efforts might be, as much as we stutter when we share Christ and him crucified, as much as we stumble over our words, as we share him and what he's done for us, we proclaim him, we proclaim Christ, and God in his mercy can use our feeble efforts, our weak efforts, to bring people to faith. Isn't that amazing? When you proclaim the gospel, when you share the gospel, it doesn't actually depend on you. You just share it and you leave it to God. It's up to him. Now, yesterday you heard many of us went to Box Hill to share of Jesus, to try to uh, point people to Jesus. Now, we don't actually know what will come of that. What we don't know what will come off the efforts yesterday. But I remember I did I did terribly yesterday. I was speaking that the longest conversation was a bad one. I stumbled, I was illogical, I didn't make much sense, I was completely hopeless. Now, you're probably thinking he became a Christian. Well, he didn't. (laughs) But if anyone was to believe that day, it wasn't because of our eloquence, certainly not my eloquence, but it is the gospel that is proclaimed, the power of God to save. Now, many of you would have heard of Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. Do you know how he was converted? Some big mega church with some megastar pastor? Not exactly that way. This was what happened. He went to church one day wanting to know how he can be saved. So he found this church. He ended up at a little primitive Methodist church. Now this was not your superstar church. There were only about 15 people at this church. Now, the, the minister, in fact, that day did not rock up. His prob- he was probably weathered in by the snow. And so, who went up to preach that day? It was the unimpressive looking shoemaker. He went up to the pulpit to preach. Wasn't prepared at all. Now, this guy didn't really know too much. And so, what did he do? He just read the text and he tried to explain every word. And so, the text that morning was from Isaiah 45. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth and so he just went through that went through each word and explained it now Spurgeon actually records that that God couldn't even pronounce the words properly but that didn't matter but that preacher just went on to explain word after word and he went on for about 10 minutes and then at the end he saw that Spurgeon a stranger to his church of 15 to this church young man he said you look very miserable and Spurgeon was and he goes on to say, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you'll be saved." And then he finished off saying, "Young man, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live." And you know what? That's how the Great Spurgeon was converted. That very moment somehow God used those words, the cloud was gone, the darkness rolled away and Spurgeon became a Christian at that moment. Somehow at that moment he saw that the Christ no longer a foolish message but the power of God to save. It does make me wonder, maybe I should skip church sometimes without (laughs) announcing it so that one of you will have to get up and preach and maybe the next Spurgeon will be saved. And so when you look at the cross, what do you see? The cross divides the world into two camps and it humbles those who are Christians. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Offensive. This is ridiculous. This is foolishness. If that is you, let us encourage you. Let me encourage you to find out that this cross is for you. Jesus came for you. There is more to learn. Don't dismiss it that soon. But if you see the cross and you see in the cross the power of God to save, if that is what you see, then proclaim Christ alone and boast in him alone. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great wisdom and power you've designed and planned and purposed salvation in the sending of your Son, who died for us in place of sinners. And we thank you that in your great mercy you have given us the wisdom to see that and to understand that and to trust that. But we do pray, Heavenly Father, that if there are those amongst us who yet to see the cross as it really is, your wisdom and your power, we pray that you might make that so. But for the rest of us, we pray, Heavenly Father, that we will be people like Paul, proclaiming Christ alone, and boasting in him alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.